Thank you so much. Y'all did a great job. All of our choirs did a good job tonight. We're so grateful for those who work with them every Wednesday evening, and they learn so many foundational things in their faith, and we are grateful to have such a strong music program, and thank you students for singing tonight and our preschoolers as well. Well, Sunday evenings, we find ourselves in the Acts of the Apostles. We're going through the book of Acts. We have four Gospels. We have a lot of letters or epistles in the New Testament, but there's only one history of the church. There's only one Acts of the Apostles. If you're listening by way of radio or you're here in the room, now we want you here. We've had great attendance, but sometimes they will say, Pastor, I'm going to miss, and can I have your notes? Well, the problem with that is it's kind of extemporaneous. I have notes, but I kind of teach from the overflow, and what I hand you may not sound like what you heard and you want a copy of. So if you go to our webpage, uh, there's a podcast collection. So if you've missed one of the Sunday evenings, you can go to the podcast on our webpage and actually hear what we're doing. So if you're listening by way of radio and you missed one of the live broadcasts, you can catch up through uh, firstamarillo.org and follow our Acts series on podcast. The Acts of the Apostles is so important because it is our only history of the church. We ended off last time, let's review just a little bit of a section there in chapter 5. We won't go back over the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but we will look at the beginning there in verse 12. And the hands of the apostles, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all in one accord in Solomon's portico. The apostles were continuing the miracle of healing, the casting out of demons, and those in the community had great awe and respect for the apostles. In fact, as you read, you realize it all the more. None of the rest, that is the disciples, dare associate with them, that is the apostles, but the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. One of the things that happens in the Acts of the Apostles is the church is growing. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 1.8 is our theme verse for this study series that we watch through the Acts of the Apostles, the growth of the church beginning where we are now in Jerusalem, then we move to Judea, and then Samaria, and we end up in Rome, uh, the capital city, the uttermost part of the earth. So they're growing, added daily. To such an extent, they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, verse 15, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. In fact, Peter was held in such high esteem there in the end of Acts chapter 5 that the shadow in antiquity was thought to be a part of the person, extension of the person, and like reaching out and touching the hem of Jesus' garment, hoping you can just kind of touch the hem as Jesus goes by. They hoped that perhaps they can even catch the shadow of Peter on their sick and infirm family members for healing, and that's what's taking place verse 16. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem, remember, beginning in Jerusalem, that's where we're still now, 
were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. So what we have is this Jesus movement is growing in Jerusalem. It is a great threat to the religious authorities, to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, with majority being Sadducees, but as we'll see in a moment, the Pharisees having quite a bit of influence. And so there's beginning to be some tension between the followers of Jesus, those who have said that this rabbi from Nazareth by the name of Jesus is the anointed one, the holy one of Israel, versus the religious authorities who had actually had him crucified. So you can feel that tension building in the text between the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, and, well, the status quo religious authorities. So, Notice how verse 17 begins with the adversative conjunction, but. The church is growing. The numbers are being added to daily. The shadow of Peter, it implies, is healing. Unclean spirits are being cast out. Everything is going great. But, but. Kind of the dark music starts. The bad guys step up. But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. The popularity, the Jews were proclaiming Jesus as Lord. They were growing in numbers. The religious authorities were losing some of their influence and their power, while they even held in esteem the shadow of Peter, and so there is filled with jealousy. Of all the states that one ever finds oneself in, we could all agree, because all of us have been filled with jealousy before, there is no more destructive state a human being can be in than being filled with jealousy. There's usually not a good ending to that kind of statement. One is filled with jealousy. Well, the high priest, the Sadducees, the aristocracy, they are filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles. Now, that's not the kind of praying laying on hands. You understand, that's, the, that's used in different ways in Acts. This is the grabbing and arresting kind of laying on of hands. They laid hands on the apostles, and they put them in a public jail. Next verse of conjunction, but an angel of the Lord. All is going well with the apostles. They're growing. The miracles are multiplying. But the religious authorities are jealous. Put them in jail now. But back to the good side, an angel lets them out of prison. Now, what's ironic about the angel letting the apostles out of prison is the Sadducees are different than Pharisees, but one of the things the Sadducees did not believe in was angels. You know, part of the reality is when someone chooses to believe in something or not, doesn't make it real, does it, or, or false. In other words, I could declare I don't believe in gravity and jump off the balcony, and whether I believe in it or not, it's going to take me down, you see. Whether or not the Sadducees believe in the angels doesn't confirm or deny their reality. While they're disbelieving in angels, the angels that they don't believe in, 
the angel is letting the apostles out. Notice, open the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. You go back to the temple where you were arrested before for proclaiming the gospel, and you don't sugarcoat it. You preach that Jesus is the Messiah and that they have crucified him and he's resurrected from the dead and they are to follow the way. You go and preach the whole message of this life, this new life, this new life in Christ. Well, let's see what happens. And upon hearing it, they entered the temple about daybreak. So there in the morning, first thing, they began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council together. That's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, even all the senate of the sons of Israel. sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. So the Jewish high court is meeting. The question on the table, the agenda is one item. What are we going to do to stop this Jesus movement? What are we going to do to silence the apostles? Well, they arrest them while they debate about what they should or shouldn't do. They'd already warned them before after they healed the lame man and they had insisted on preaching anyway. Go get them. They send the prisoners to go, the prison guards to go get them, and well, the gate is secure. The guards are standing place. But the angel had somehow released the prisoners, the apostles, and left the jail intact. Verse 24. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as what would come of this. But someone reported, behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. There is this subtle, clear message that the religious authorities will not be able to stop the proclamation of the gospel. They've warned them before. They've put Peter and John in prison before. Now all the apostles in prison, they've told them to stop speaking. They've locked them in the jail. They've called together the high court. But the reality is, no matter what the Jewish hierarchy might do, they were powerless over this movement of the church, which is a movement of the Spirit. Therefore, they're doing the very thing the Jewish high court did not want them to do. They were preaching and the temple precinct. They were teaching. Look at the end of verse 25. They are teaching the people. The good news is we found the prisoners. The bad news is they're teaching the gospel. They're preaching Jesus in the temple. That's the bad news that comes to religious authorities. So they brought them and stood them before the council, that is, the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name. 
And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, the high priest presiding as the officer began the interrogation, and he said, you have two offenses. First of all, you have broken the warning. You have been forbidden by the Sanhedrin to preach the story of this man, Jesus, and you have continued to do it. And secondly, you've made us, and they were, guilty for his blood. You have made us responsible for his death. Now, do you not find it interesting that the high priest says nothing like, how'd you guys get out of jail? Or what are you doing in the temple? Or, I mean, I, I mean <laughs> I, I'd want to know if I were in charge, if I had a, a bad gate or, or something or someone made a key, seemed like you'd want to know, hey, how'd you guys get out anyway? The reality is, I think the Jewish officials are beginning to feel the power of kicking against God, and they realize there are other powers in play. So that's, that's the accusation. We told you to stop. You're putting his blood on our backs. And Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. That's the second time Peter said that in Acts. He said it the first time. When he was told to shh, quit preaching it, we must obey God rather than man. Now, you remember I told you that the Acts of the Apostles, that when Peter stands up and speaks or preaches in the Acts of the Apostles, that this happens before any gospel is ever pinned down. And so if we want to ask ourselves, what is it that the early church really thought about Jesus? What is the core of the apostles' theology? What is the story in a nutshell that even more, even more central or climactic than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the sermons by the apostles themselves in Acts. This is the center of biblical theology. When Peter speaks in Acts... There's your stake in the ground right there. That's before Matthew's ever penned and certainly before John is ever written. This is not someone writing about the apostles. This is the apostles speaking to the Jewish Sanhedrin or preaching to the multitudes. And herein we find our core theology. And a few weeks ago, I gave you six to eight different principles that they preached. And we see some of them coming up again tonight. But Peter said, the apostles answered and said, we must obey God, God rather than men. And here it goes. Here we see these core principles of theology of the apostles. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a, look at your translation, does it say cross? Uh, the real word there is tree, it should be tree. Uh, it's a reference to Deuteronomy, blessed, accursed is he who hangs on the tree. Of course, it means cross, but it's not the word cross, it's, it's the word, word tree. 
So here we see as Peter begins to make the defense of the report of the Sanhedrin, first of all, he says, one of the things we've seen throughout this Acts of the Apostles, that God was at work in the story of Jesus, especially in the crucifixion and resurrection. That's an important part of the apostles' theology, that God himself was working on our behalf, wasn't surprised by, but actually had planned the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. In other places, he brings in the prophets and says, they've already testified about this, and this is the fulfillment of what the prophets have said. So what I want you to notice, central, the first words out of his mouth are resurrection. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. That is the central tenet of our faith. It is translated, Jesus is the resurrected Lord. That God has raised Jesus from the dead. If that statement is not true, then we need to stop doing everything we're doing and go do something else. If there was not a bodily resurrection, an empty tomb of the crucified Jesus, then it's for us game over. So the first words out of the apostles' mouth are the central words of the Christian faith, God raised up Jesus, whom you put to death. Now, don't you find it odd when one of the accusations against Peter and the apostles was, you're putting his blood on our hands? Well, he just does it again. He, he doesn't, he's not heeding their warnings. There he goes again. He just did what they asked him not to do. Quit saying we killed Jesus. Well, he says it again in his answer. You had Jesus put to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, it's beautiful language in verse 31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior. He is the one that God exalted to his right hand. Now, as Baptists, we do real good with crucifixion theology. We do real good with Easter and resurrection. We don't talk near enough about exaltation. It is more than just resurrection. It is exalted to be seated at the right hand of God. That in Paul's writings and the Acts, the apostles, that is part of the resurrection. It's not complete when the tomb is empty. It is only complete when he is seated at the right hand of the Father and fully complete when he returns as resurrected Lord and Lords. You see? He's exalted, crucified, resurrected, but more than just crucified and resurrected. God exalted him to where? To the right hand, made him what? Prince and Savior. Another tenet, this core of the apostles' theology. You remember we talked about what do we do? Jesus was crucified, he was resurrected, he was exalted, he fulfills the prophets, God was not surprised, God was acting in this person called Jesus. What do we do? Repent and believe. You see that? See that next tenet? To call Israel to repentance. Now, it's more than just Israel, but who's he speaking to? The Jewish high court. He's willing to say the Gentiles come to faith too. Thank goodness, but... It is the tenet 
the tenet of repentance. We are to repent. The story of God acting in history, especially in the crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation of the returning Lord Jesus Christ, ought to cause us to do something. And how are we to respond? Just like they do all throughout Acts of the Apostles, we're going to see as we go through the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? The Ethiopian treasurer, what must I do? Repent. Be baptized. Repent. That's the message of Acts. We are to be a people of repentance for the forgiveness of our sins. And then that next tenet, and we're witnesses, we saw all these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, they've been warned before. Now they're warned again, but they continue to preach. Look over at chapter 4 and verse 18 to remind you that this isn't the first time we've seen this type of confrontation with the religious authorities. And when they had summoned them, this is Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I hope you picked up on that before. Look at verse 28 of chapter 5. We gave you strict orders not continue teaching in his name. And I called to your attention that the difference between the miracles performed by Jesus and the miracles performed by the apostles is Jesus didn't call upon any name for someone to rise and walk or any name for the demon to be cast out. He just said, get out or be healed or whatever but the apostles, not having power themselves, always commanded these things be done. How? In the name of Jesus. We warned you now, back to 418, not to do these things in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. We too live in a culture that tries to silence our witness and we too must say we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. And they threaten them, let them go. Why are they afraid? Because of the people. Look at verse 21 of chapter 4. There's so many people following them. They're afraid in chapter 5 because of all the people, they are very careful. Look back at 526. Then the captain of the guard went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. But they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. Make no mistake, the popularity of the apostles was growing at the expense of the religious authorities. They dare not grab them by force in the temple area. In fact, what you realize is they wouldn't have had to go with the, the guards at all unless they chose to cooperate with the examination by the Sanhedrin. So back to 533. When they heard what Peter said in defense, that he had accused them once again of having the blood of Jesus on their hands, they were cut to the quick and intending to slay them. Most likely, it was the Sadducees who wanted 
the death penalty to the apostles. The Sadducees did not believe in angels. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And the Sadducees did not believe in any form or fashion in a resurrection. The Pharisees, another part of that high court, a minority part, think about, well, don't think about American politics. Just don't think about that at all. I apologize for saying that. Think about a really peaceful country where there's a two-party system. And one party has the majority and the other party has the minority. And the minority might still have some influence, you see. So the Sadducees don't believe in angels and don't believe in the resurrection. They have the majority on the Sanhedrin. But the Pharisees are still influential. And the Pharisees were interested in this language of resurrection. In fact, as you follow the New Testament, who is it that becomes believers of Jesus from this high court? Is someone like Nicodemus, who is a what? Pharisee. Or is someone like the Apostle Paul, who is a what? Pharisee. You see, the Pharisees didn't have a big step to make because they already believed in the ability for the dead to be raised. So the Sadducees, which includes the aristocracy, which includes those with power and money, the high priests, they're ready to give the death penalty to Peter and the apostles. Now, here's, a, here's another adversative conjunction. I, I guess we had number three in verse 33, number four in verse 34. But a certain Pharisee, See there, Sadducees versus Pharisees. So now, a minority report. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Well, you, you might know this character Gamaliel. You might not know that you know him, but you, you do know him. Gamaliel is the teacher of one of your, your favorite people. Gamaliel is a teacher of the, the Apostle Paul. You remember when the Apostle Paul is giving his resume verbally, he says, Pharisee of Pharisees, and as the law, I sat the feet of, of whom? Gamaliel. So this is Paul's teacher. He does believe in the resurrection. He's a little bit cautious and interested in the gospel, perhaps. And anyway, for the Sadducees are calling for the death penalty, Gamaliel says, I don't know, wait just a minute. Now, why would he, being on the minority side of things, have this much power? Well, it's already hinted to you there in the text. A certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by whom? All the people. If you're going to go against Gamaliel, you better have your gun loaded. People like Gamaliel. In fact, I want you to notice Gamaliel says, hey, get those apostles out of here for a short while. I think he, he fully intends he's going to solve this thing in a few minutes. They're going to have to do what he says. Get them out for just a minute. Let me take care of this. That's, that's the position of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was Hillel's grandson. That might not mean a thing to you, but in the first century BC, there were two major schools of, of Jewish thought, the rabbis. There was Hillel, which was more lenient, and Shammai, which was more conservative, and Gamaliel comes from the bloodline of all the bloodlines. Hillel was the main school, and Gamaliel is his grandson. All the people respect him, and he says to them after he gets the apostles out, hey, now listen to 
me, you be careful what you propose to do with these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of 400 men joined him. Thutis was probably someone with messianic expectations, claiming to have to be the Messiah or be a, a follower of the Messiah. He got 400 people to rally by him, and he was slain, and it came to nothing. Or, or there's another man named Judas, now not the one you know of, of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him, well, they dispersed and scattered. And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men, let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So Gamaliel gives him great advice and says something like this. We've had men, we've had movements before, Judas, Judas. They arise, they turn out to be false, they die, they're slain, their people disperse. This thing, leave it alone. If you try to fight it, it'll get bigger. Besides... Notice the open door he leaves. If God really is in this movement of Jesus, then you won't be able to stop it, number one. And number two, you'll be fighting against God. Look how they respond. And they took his advice, verse 40. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. This is 39 lashes on your knees, bare-chested, not good. Men died from it, nor them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and they released them. So when they went their way from the presence of the council, are they defeated? Are they scared? Are their heads bowed down? No, they're rejoicing that they had been able to share in the suffering of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They kept right on teaching that Rabbi Jesus was the Christos, the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One of Israel. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. The voice of the church even by the Jewish high court, could not and would not be silenced. Let us pray. Father, I read a passage like this. It makes me ponder why we are so timid when it comes to sharing our faith. They were bold. They would not be silenced. They had seen their Jesus crucified. They had spoken to his resurrected state, and they would not be silenced. Oh, God, may we too continue this movement of the Spirit even today, proclaiming, that this Jesus is the Christ. Amen.